This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we examine the first chapter of Paul's letter to the Galatians, listening to Paul describe a gospel he received straight from Jesus, not from any human teaching. Yeah. We are going to start a verse-by-verse journey. It's not as impressive as the gospel of Matthew, but every verse. Paul's gospel, though. Yeah. As we've talked about. Ah, I like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like that. Excellent. So we're going to go verse-by-verse through Galatians, become one of my favorite favorite books. Uh, speaking of books, let me give you a recommendation um, just for the whole book of Galatians. One source I have really enjoyed up to its, uh, I think it's last three chapters, three or four chapters. I always got to classify this. Yeah. I remember you mentioning this when we first went through Galatians. But it doesn't matter because the whole rest of the book, and there's like 18 chapters. So like most of the book is super great. Uh, Thomas Lancaster um, is a Messianic Jewish scholar, and he wrote a book titled The Holy Epistle to the Galatians. We're going to link that in the show notes. He uses fantastic scholarship, um, new perspective on Paul, and that's somewhat unique for a Messianic scholar. And I know we have a lot of Messianic listeners to our podcast, so I want to be very, very gentle with this. I don't typically align with Messianic Judaism. I know a lot of people describe me as a Messianic Jew, um, and and in concept, of course, I'm a Jew that believes in Jesus, follows Jesus, absolutely, in that case I am. But the theology of Messianic Judaism very rarely aligns with the theology and the hermeneutic that I'm going to use. I have yet to find a body of Messianic believers that doesn't uh, get rid of me at some point, usually early in the relationship. (laughs) Uh, And a lot of that is because I follow a more orthodox Jewish perspective of reading the scriptures. Um, and, and I cling to a new perspective on Pauline theology, which I feel like the Messianic community is still catching up on. What I love about Thomas Lancaster, uh, published out of First Roots of Zion, is he, I feel like he's a voice that's trying to kind of lead the charge and recapture some of that and does a super good job. And then the last three chapters of this book, I feel like he just kind of abandons what he's just written about for about 15, 16 chapters. And then closes with a typical messianic perspective, just a little bit softer. And I I don't understand that. So I I always love to give a disclaimer because I do not agree with where the book ends. The book kind of ends with like, well, we should all be trying to follow Torah. No, um, that's actually, and that's what was so confusing for me is he spent like 15 chapters showing why Paul's arguing to not do that. So I really did not like the closing of the book at all. So let me make that very, very clear. But up to that point, the book is absolute gold. He's using the scholarship of the authors we just we talked about very recently. Brent, we talked about Mark DeNanos. We talked about um, James Dunn. We talked about N.T. Wright, E.P. Sanders. When you look at his bibliography in the back, it's full of those names and those sources. And so I'm loving everything that he he's he's working with there. And, uh, and, and up until those last few chapters, really, really, really liked that book. So I recommend it. And then we can get to the last few chapters, uh, read them and think critically about them. Just know that Marty doesn't think that's, that's not how I think. Anyway. So five-star rating, first portion of the book. Absolutely. First, first 80% of the book, maybe more. Five-star. Five stars. Pretty Actually, darn close. Five, I don't know. Like five stars is hard. Five stars is hard. But it was pretty darn good. But then, yeah, the last the bit last of the book three definitely chapters, makes it a four-star book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, as a whole, it makes it a four-star book. The last three chapters would be like two stars. Two stars. Oh, okay. yeah, 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 yeah. Not one, though. Not one. Not one. All right. I still want to respect people that disagree with me. And he does, a good, he does good work. He does good work. I really enjoy Lancaster. So. All right. Well. That was a lot of a book recommendation, but there you go. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a very heady book, right? 
Um, yes. Yeah. It's, well, it, I don't know. It's it's accessible though. It is. It's accessible. not like it's not like if you're going to try to read Done or Nanos. Like he takes Dunn and Nanos and makes it much more palatable. Okay. So any, I think any any of our readers could, any of our readers, any of our listeners could read that book. All right. So Absolutely. if you're if you're a, a listener who's very interested in Galatians, this would be a, a great thing to pick up. Or if you're like, what is this new perspective on Paul? Pick up the book. It'd be great. All right. Should we start reading then? We should. Let's uh, every verse of Galatians. Give me the first few verses here. Let's open it up. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers and sisters with me to the churches in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, so let's let's talk about some context that should feel like a little bit of review from the book of Acts and a few episodes ago. All right, that's what we're going to do here today. Um, now that we've wrapped up our conversation about the narrative of God and what we call the book of Acts, Brent? Last episode? The epilogue. The epilogue. I want to start diving into the letters of the New Testament. I will not try to present the letters in any sort of chronological order, as I feel like debate is a lively one. And for the most part, I really don't care. Some of them I do care about, like Galatians. Uh, It doesn't lend easy answers. There's a lot of debate and a lot of ways to slice the conversation. Instead, I want to focus on hearing each letter in its context. That will be my focus. However, I do want to start with the letter of Galatians for a few reasons. The first reason being that I personally believe Galatians is the earliest letter of, of the entire New Testament. It's the first letter that written letter that we have of Paul's in the canon, in my opinion. And I'm not going to try to present these chronologically, and that's not necessarily, I would call it the popular opinion, but there is a significant school of thought that does place it as the earliest letter. And I agree that it is. So does Thomas Lancaster and New Perspective on Paul, folks. And the dates don't necessarily matter that much. Although when you talk about like the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70, like sure. whether a, a letter is written before or after that can kind of color some of the right. things that it says. So, And a lot of scholars are going to argue this has to be before the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15. That's early, Brent. That is early. Like you have to do some, you have to really pay attention to how you do your timeline because it's still 14 years after Paul's calling, conversion, whatever. It's 14 years after that, at least. It's probably even more than that. But it is before the Jerusalem Council because Paul makes no reference to the Jerusalem Council in this letter. And his whole letter is about that subject matter. Like if that meeting has happened, Paul would reference it. Like without any doubt in my mind, Paul would reference that meeting. It would be like his nail in the coffin point. But he doesn't. So it has to be before Jerusalem Council. But either way, Paul has a significant amount of ministry experience under his belt before he writes even his first letter. Absolutely. Yeah, without a doubt. And there's a lot of other reasons why people would believe that this might be his first letter. So I believe it's his first letter. Second, I think the letter to the Galatians is one that that flows best out of the book of Acts. Like we're going to come right off of our conversation about Theosebes. Jews, proselytes, that's going to be, that is going to be the context of Galatians. So it flows well there. And third, I think understanding the context of Galatia and the argument we touched on at places like Pisidian Antioch in our Acts study, um, I think that conversation surrounding Christianity in Asia and Asia Minor is essential to understanding our New Testament correctly. So that's where we're going to start there. So to review, we said back in the book of Acts, uh, uh, we talked about Barnabas and Paul going to Pisidian Antioch. And that Jewish world of Asia and Asia Minor was having to wrestle with a question found in the new world of the diaspora. 
What do we do with the, what was the Greek word, Brent? Theosebes. What do we do with the Theosebes? Which meant what? The God-fearing Gentiles. Right. The God-fearer. What do we do with the God-fearing Gentiles? We talked about how the city of Pisidian Antioch sat on the edge of the region of Galatia, and that region was dominated by which ultra-conservative rabbi's view, Brent? Uh, Shammai. Shammai. Galatia was this backwater, off-the-beaten-path kind of place where those Jews who wanted to maintain the purity of their Jewish faith could go and avoid the corruption of that secular Greco-Roman world. If the Gentiles wanted to worship the God of Israel in this region, the region of Galatia, the answer was easy. They needed to convert to Judaism. That was the Shammai perspective. But the arrival of the gospel changed the gospel, the Jesus gospel, changed everything in that world. All of a sudden, there was a Jewish community insisting that God's grace, salvation, and justification was for the Gentile just as much as it was for the Jew. This group of believers was arguing not only for a place of fellowship at the table, but for full-fledged membership and adoption into God's family. Is that where Hillel landed, Brent? Uh, Not quite. No, he landed a step back from that. He said, you're welcome at the table and you're wonderful cousins, but you're not full-fledged. You're not children of Abraham. But this new community and the argument Paul's going to make in Galatians He is going to argue for full-fledged sibling, brother, sister, community, children of Abraham. In a region like Galatia, this was simply unacceptable. What this meant, of course, was that God-fearing Gentiles who followed Jesus in Galatia were not given a place in the assembly. They were not given a seat at the table or the hand of fellowship. They were excluded, not totally excluded. They were welcome to be on the fringe. But unless they wanted to convert, they were simply not seen as a part of God's family. And this led to a major temptation for the believers in Galatia. If they would simply convert to Judaism, they would be welcomed into the Jewish family and accepted in the synagogues. Not only this, but in the first century, the Jewish people were exempt from the imperial demands of emperor worship through, the, through what historians refer to as the Jewish exception. So Herod the Great, you remember him from session three? Right. Pretty big name. He had an arrangement with Caesar... In order to keep the peace in the region of Judea and Palestine, he had, a, he had an agreement that said, if we offer a sacrifice for you every day, can you make us exempt from emperor worship? Because Jews are never going to bow down and worship you as emperor. You will never have peace. And a lot of people talk about how Herod the Great kind of fooled Caesar because he didn't say we will offer a sacrifice to you. He said we will offer a sacrifice for you. And Caesar just didn't catch it and was like, oh, yeah, sure. I mean, as long as you offer a sacrifice for me. And so the Jews were like, oh, we will absolutely offer a sacrifice for you because you need a lot of sacrifice. <laughs> Pretty tricky. Yeah. And so they had what was called the Jewish exception, which means when Rome comes through town and puts the sword at your throat and says, worship Caesar or die, the Jews are like, we're Jewish. We have the Jewish exception, imperial order from Caesar. And they were exempt. So based on that agreement, The Jewish people were the only people excused from offering their worship to Caesar. So imagine being a God-fearing Gentile, Brent. If you're included in the Jewish community, you don't have to worry. But if you're not included in the Jewish community, like in the region of Galatia, Galatia, your life is on the line. Because if Rome comes through and demands emperor worship, you now have to choose. 
So imagine the temptation of wanting to become Jewish. So what do you do when you're a Gentile and not included in the Jewish community? Not to bow your knee to Caesar was a capital offense. The reasons were many for why the Theosebes would see it as easier and more beneficial to simply convert to Judaism. Understanding this context is absolutely critical to understanding the letter to the Galatians. Look at how one of the opening paragraphs reads. Go ahead, Brent, and pick up where you left off. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. So Paul says on no uncertain terms that the gospel of Christ is a gospel of inclusion. The whole message of good news, the euangelion to the people of Galatia, is that in Christ, everyone is welcome at God's table, and everyone belongs in God's family. Paul insists that if they allow this message to be perverted, like if they just convert to Judaism, they are ruining the entire mission of God in Galatia. They must put the gospel on display despite the hardship and despite the persecution. As we continue to look through the book of Galatians, we would do well to remind ourselves that in Christ, there are no those people. Like those people don't exist in the gospel community. There are no those people. We should remind ourselves that the gospel of Christ always has been and always will be a gospel of inclusion. I grew up fundamentalist, hyper-conservative. I understand that inclusion was a naughty word. You don't get to say inclusion. We have to be challenged by that. The gospel is inclusive. That doesn't mean I'm a universalist. It doesn't mean that all dogs go to heaven. It just means the gospel is a gospel of radical inclusion. The gospel fights for people to have access to the the Eucharist table, to the risen, resurrected Jesus. That's what it means. This good news is an announcement that all people through faith in Christ have a seat at the table. There is no people group, geographical region, or religious establishment with a monopoly on the faith. To pervert this truth is to pervert the very mission of God. And so now that we've looked at the context of the situation, which help us understand the temptation for these Galatians to turn to a different gospel, we are now prepared to keep moving on in chapter one. Paul's going to shift his concern to explaining that his gospel, where he got his gospel, and whether his gospel has been, uh, whether or not it has the blessing of the apostles, you know, the guys in charge, those guys. I say his gospel, and we've titled this podcast episode, Paul's gospel, and not just the gospel, because this is how Paul will talk about his mission and the calling to the world, his calling to the world of the Gentiles. In the evangelical world, we have come to know and speak of the gospel as a package of theological truths expressed in a particular way that articulates the salvation of mankind. We have previously discussed in other episodes and other parts of our study that the biblical world understood gospel to be what, Brent? Uh, the uh, pronouncement of a new king and a new kingdom. Absolutely. And so while the abstract truth of the gospel, the truth of the gospel as an abstract idea, might be something to articulate comprehensively, there would also be a lot of expressions of this abstract truth. Gospel would refer to any announcement 
of that kingdom and all of its implications. Paul's case is that God has given him a unique announcement for a unique part of the world, a unique gospel. This gospel is going to need to be accepted by the apostles and the church at large in order for it to have any authority. If Paul's preaching a new gospel that is not aligned with the larger gospel, the gospel, if it's not aligned with the teachings of Jesus, if it's not full of what Jesus came to do, Paul's gospel is going to be null and void. And he knows that. So Paul is going to build a case for the source, the founding, the authority of his gospel. He's going to tell the story of how he received it, how he checked it, and how the leadership of the early church agreed that Paul's gospel is in fact the complete, it's in complete agreement with the understanding of what God is doing in his kingdom through Jesus. So the the first thing that Paul wants to do is make very clear that this gospel he preaches is not a gospel that came from a human teacher. So go ahead and give us the next couple of verses, Brent. I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. And this is important and somewhat surprising, by the way, because as a Jew, Paul has one of the most impressive pedigrees around. Like as a student of who, Brent? Gamaliel. Like Gamaliel, like the Gamaliel, like one of the most heralded sages of the first century. Paul has the most significant source of authority by who his rabbi was. Paul's very presence in a room makes him one of the most sought out voices that could be in the room. This new gospel was not Gamaliel's though. No, Paul has left this former rabbi and has begun following a new one. And this means he will need to undergo some serious training in order to be a teacher under a new yoke. Can you imagine doing all that work under Gamaliel? Like having the PhD from Harvard, but then having like some Jesus Bible college come by and be like, well, actually, going to have to learn anew. That would have taken a whole bunch of humility. Considering uh, what I've seen some friends who have gone through PhD programs go through, yeah, that would be be a thing. Quite the thing to set aside. Okay, so let's hear how Paul describes it. Go ahead and give us the next little section in Galatians here, Brent. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. So Paul says, I got my prophetic call on the road to Damascus and I did not go to Jerusalem. He did not go to Peter. And say, hey, Peter, tell me everything you learned from Jesus. He instead went to Arabia and then later went to Damascus before he went to Peter, James, John, and the disciples. Paul's point is this. When I had my life-changing experience with God, I did not meet with anybody. I went off and was trained, quote unquote, by Jesus himself in Arabia and Damascus. And not only does Paul have to learn a new yoke from a new rabbi, But it will be three years before he consults any follower of Jesus. Go ahead and keep reading, Brent. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, or Peter. Cephas, yep. Cephas. Yep. And stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia, 
I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they praise God because of me. So after three years, Paul finally meets Peter. After three years of just hanging out apparently with Jesus, whatever that looks like. Paul went out and hung out with Jesus. Jesus taught him his gospel. And then he went after three years to meet Peter. Three years being a similar term to how long Ooh, Peter spent with Jesus. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, and James, by the way, who is the leader of the church where we've talked about, Brent? In Jerusalem. In Jerusalem. He's the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And you may uh, remember in the book of Acts how the church centered in Jerusalem is having to wrestle with this new understanding of Peter's experience, because Peter's already had an experience with who, Brent? With Cornelius. With Cornelius. So they're already wrestling with this whole Gentile thing. And Paul, who hasn't shown up yet, who's been hanging out with Jesus for three years and apparently gets this gospel about the Gentiles, comes down and starts to hang out with them and meets with James, who's in the heat of the battle. <laughs> like he's in Jerusalem. It's Peter and James who are the leaders of this early church movement. John's going to also be a leader, but that's going to happen a little bit later in history. That's kind of in the making at this point. So Peter and James, after three years of training, Paul goes to meet with the leadership of this church, led by the guys who followed Jesus around in the flesh. John not really being in the story kind of makes uh, sense for an early writing absolutely. of Galatians. Yeah, absolutely. Now, he's going to show up in the very next chapter, but he's not. he doesn't have that, that status of the pastor of Asia yet. Actual, these guys, Peter, Peter and James, they're... And John, they're the actual, the actual Talmudim of Jesus himself. So during this time, Paul is relatively unknown by the church. He was persecuting the church. He has his Damascus road and then disappears. So it would make sense that people don't know about him because he hasn't met anybody. He just left. And people have heard rumors that this guy now preaches the faith that he tried to destroy. The two guys who were with him. Sure. Like, and then, uh, so we kind of heard something. Sure. And, um, and Ananias. And we drug him into the city, and then yep. I don't know what happened to him. <laughs> yep. And then Ananias, the house that he had to go to when the scales fell off his eyes. Like, there are some people that have heard the story, but this is not like wild news yet. The implication, especially when you see this in conjunction with what we study in the book of Acts, is that Paul takes his gospel and checks it with the church leadership. When they praised God because of me, is what Paul says, the assumption is that they heard his gospel and his story and were fine with his ministry. They heard his story and went, wow, this is incredible. I can't believe Jesus is doing this. Praise God. But what's going to be the result of Paul's continued ministry? Does this testimony and the Jerusalem council make everything smooth? Like, does, does that, is, that, is everything going to smooth over and everything just becomes an easy ride? Or is this going to become a little bit trickier? That is where we're going to head in our next podcast. So we have the first chapter of Galatians down the hatch. So question, it says, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. That's the James who's the leader of the church, but he wasn't an apostle? No, so that James is, so the Lord's brother, people have always, and there's there's still a massive debate about this. I don't want to act like this is an open shut case. But this James is the James that was one of the 12 disciples. You have Peter, James, and John. This James is not going to be James, John's brother. It's going to be James, son of Alphaeus, who is more than likely a cousin. People always think that there's a James, the half-brother of Jesus, and there very well could be a James, half-brother of Jesus. Very, James is actually the name Jacob in the Hebrews. So it's a very Jewish name. So there'd be a million Jacobs. 
But when people say the brother of Jesus, the term there is a term of kinship. It's not specifically of his brother, brother. It's just a term of kinship. And we've seen that before. Yes, absolutely. How Abraham got away exactly. with saying that Sarah was his. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. So I, I think this is like the cousin, the, the, the extended family member of Jesus. Um, so that's what I think he's saying here. This is James, the tw- one of the 12, the James that's wandering around when it's Peter, James, and John following Jesus. And Jesus took Peter, James, and John and went and prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He went Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's that James. So Peter, James, and John. John had a brother named James, but he's not the James of Peter, James, and John. Correct. Okay. That is correct. It's not the two sons of Zebedee who are in the triumvirate. Poor guy. I know. It's like, ah, missed it. <laughs> missed it. Just a little. Which you would expect. You'd, you'd, you'd expect the firstborn, the Bahors, or right. maybe, maybe the non-firstborns. Who knows? But you would expect, like, not brothers. You would expect a brother to be brought up and included. Sure. All right. Well, that ended up being a fairly succinct episode. Yeah, not bad for a whole chapter of Galatians, verse by verse. Hopefully gave some people uh, some things to think about. Yeah, 25 and a, minutes. And, a, and most of a book to read. Yeah, absolutely. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, if you have any uh, questions about the show, go to baymadiscipleship.com. Feel free to get in touch with us if you have any thoughts, questions, comments. Uh, Hopefully you're in a discussion group uh, to talk about this and wrestle through this together. Uh, Either way, thanks for joining us on the Baymod Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.